Good morning. You can be seated. Good morning. As Diana just said, my name is Dan Earhart. I am one of the elders of the church. Our senior pastor, Ross Beebe, is out this week. And so he asked me if I would step in to preach on this concept that we've been talking through for the last few weeks, almost the last two months, on this idea of dwelling together. Now, I work in the private sector, and the CEO of my company, when he gets up and starts talking about something he's passionate about, he has this saying, he's like, for those of you who are in the front row, be careful, this could be one of those spit-flying messages. All right, so if you see me get a little bit excited, it's because I'm a lot excited, and I'm very passionate about this, and so uh, forgive me, those of you folks uh, in the front row. Would you pray with me, please? Great God of heaven, Father God, we pray that your spirit would come down upon us, that you would open up my mouth and speak, and then you would open up the eyes of the people's hearts here, that they would hear, and not only hear, Lord God, but be transformed Jesus Christ, would you be exalted and magnified in this place? And we ask you, Lord God, that this would not be the words of a mere man, but that you would speak from heaven, that you would transfix us, that you would transform us, and that your kingdom would be extended today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I mentioned that the, what we're going to talk about this week is this concept of dwelling together. And to do that, I'm going to read through Ephesians chapter 1, all of it, and then I'm going to read and preach through Ephesians chapter 2. But I want to start just by saying why it is that we have as a church committed to being focused on this idea of dwelling together over these last two months. It's because God commands it. And it's because we don't do it very well, right? So you may recall almost two months ago when Ross read through the list of one another's from the Bible, for example, bear with one another. Well, why do we have to be commanded to bear with one another, Doug? Because sometimes we're unbearable, right? We are commanded to forgive one another. Why? Because we wrong one another. And forgiveness is hard, and giving it is very difficult. And then the, the, the command that Jesus himself gave, love one another. We have to be commanded to love one another. Incredibly difficult. And for you kids here, when your parents teach you to share, right? Did you know that that's, that's from the Bible, that we are to be generous with one another? Do you want to know why? You're stingy. You're selfish. And so are your parents, okay? And so am I. And so all of these things God has commanded us, and today what we're going to look at is this idea of dwelling together among people of different races, dwelling together among people of different races. And so the, you're going to see Ephesians chapter 1 pop up on the screen, and I'm going to read through it, and I'm going to try to do it quickly, and we're not going to cover it, but here's what I want you to get a sense of. The awesome, and I don't mean the way we talk about, you know, Kyler Murray being awesome. I'm talking about the awesome, capital A, awesomeness of God himself, 
of God the creator. And just allow these words, like read these words, hear these words, and just see this great goodness of God because Paul is spit-flying. He's passionate, and he wants you to know how great God is. Okay, you ready? Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it comes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And he goes on, in him, he, it's like he can't stop himself. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. And I want you to footnote this, get ready. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, spoiler alert, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. But Paul is not done yet. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And Paul takes a breath. And then he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. And he's going to go on and he's going to say some very specific things that he is asking God to give these Ephesian believers. And it's building up. There's this crescendo as it builds and builds and builds to the end of chapter one to give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and here we go, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, meaning Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And at that I say, hallelujah. You know, I played high school football, and we had a coach, Don Roddy, who used to say on Friday nights, and I still remember my first Friday night, suiting it up, and I almost lost some control of some, I almost lost control of some things, right? And my coach used to say, if you can't get excited about this, check yourself, right? 
And you can hear in the words of the Apostle Paul that he is excited about the goodness of God. In love, he predestined us and he made us, he adopted us as sons. This grace that he lavished upon us, not stingy, but that he lavished upon us. And it is this awesome goodness of God. And that is chapter one. Get ready for chapter two. What we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 2 and there are going to be a bunch of contrasts. For you kids, in your grammar lessons, we're going to look at some conjunctions. We're going to look at and you, two of my favorite words in the Bible, but God, in the next conjunction, but now, and then but you. And we're just going to walk through Ephesians chapter 2 after he has gone in this celebration, almost this euphoric display of saying how awesome God is, he's going to turn his attention to us. Ready? Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That's quite an accusation. If you are a Christian, what the Apostle Paul here is saying is that before you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you were following the devil. And if you are not a Christian, if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, the Apostle Paul, God himself speaking through a man, says you are following the prince of the power of the air. How many people have seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Hilarious, right? Do you remember the scene where the three jailbreakers are driving down the road in the middle of the country, in the country and they hit that crossroads? And there's a young black man on the corner, and they pick him up. It's three white men, and they pick up this, this young black man named Tommy. And the, the three men had just come from a revival. And two of them went down to get baptized and saved. And George Clooney is the driver. And George Clooney is mocking his two friends for having just gotten saved. And they pick up Tommy and they said, Tommy, well, what were you doing out here in the middle of nowhere at a crossroads? And Tommy said, I sold my soul to the devil. And George Clooney famously says, as Deanna did a spoiler alert, George Clooney famously says, well, ain't, doesn't that beat all? Pete and Delmer here, they just got themselves saved. I guess that makes me the only one who remains unaffiliated. And don't we think that way? You see, we think, we think there's neutrality. We think there's Switzerland. We think we're Switzerland. That we're not following anybody. That we choose on our own. Let me tell you, the Bible makes it absolutely clear no one is unaffiliated. No one is neutral. If there, were neut if there was neutrality between Jesus and the evil one, if there was neutrality, you wouldn't need a savior. Right. You would need a salesman. 
who would give you a great sales pitch about why you ought to eat over here and not eat over here. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that outside of Jesus Christ, we are following the devil. 2018, I said it. We are following the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, the sons of disobedience, the children of wrath. Which one are you? Which one? Are you neutral? Then you're either lying to yourself or our enemy, who's known as the deceiver, has pulled the wool over your eyes. And you'll notice that it doesn't say that you have to be a believer in Satan. It says you're following. Following. Who are you following? Well, I have to tell you that because I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, this next verse, in fact, these next two words are some of my favorite in all of the Bible. Because before I was saved, I was following the prince of the power of the air. That didn't mean I was out cheating on my wife. I wasn't beating my kids. I wasn't even cheating on my billable hours at work. It meant I was so self-righteous in my own morality. It meant I thought I was so doggone good. And I was deceived. But God, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. But God, here we go again, Paul is erupting again, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were just singing that, remember? By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him, meaning with Jesus, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you hear why Paul is celebrating? Because Paul knew who he was before he was a follower of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, the mighty Apostle Paul, who had been this devout Jew, who had been persecuting Christians because of his belief in the Jewish God, Yahweh, until that moment on the road to Damascus, we learn about in the book of Acts, that God Jesus himself speaks from heaven and eventually scales, things like scales will fall from Paul's eyes and he will bow before the Lord Jesus, naming him Lord and King. And so he has something to celebrate here and he knows that it isn't of his own doing. Do you hear that? It's grace. It wasn't anything that, that, that Paul, who was dead, that I did that because I was dead, that any of us who were followers of Jesus did because we were dead. Spiritually dead. But God, because of his great love for us, being rich in mercy, the great love with which he loved us, in his grace, he saved us. That's the gospel. That is the gospel that we are deceived outside of Jesus. Sometimes we're deceived into believing we are too dirty, too shameful, too bad for God. And that's when God says, no, 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 no. You know your condition. And Jesus offers himself as savior, not as salesman with a sales pitch, as savior with a bloody cross, who says, I took that punishment for you. 
It's those of us who are religious, self-righteous, moralists, do-gooders. Cullen County residents, often, who need to be especially careful here. But Paul says, no, 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 you were dead in your trespasses, and you are now alive in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say famously in verse 8, and many of us have memorized this verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, everything that we just talked about, it's grace. It's a gift of God. We didn't deserve it. We were spiritually dead. Dead people don't save themselves. Dead people need a savior. That is Jesus. And then he says, but you have been saved. For those of you who have been saved, you've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if I were writing the Bible, if I had been the one writing the Bible, I would have just started into a list of, and here are the good things you ought to do. Here are the good works you ought to walk in. That'll come, but not until chapter 4. And here we are, only halfway through chapter 2. So what does Paul do? Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What if I just shut my Bible there and say, have a great day. Without hope, having no, without God and having no hope in the world. Without hope and having no God in the world. Why does Paul go back? Remember, chapter 1. The awesome goodness, the lavish grace, the generosity, the love, the great mercy of God. Chapter 2 starts and he says we're dead in our sins. But then chapter 2 goes on of this rich, how rich God is in mercy and how he has, his, his, he has loved us with a great love. Why then does he push us back into remembering? Into remembering who we were. And not only who we were, but who we were in relation to another group of people. You see, he's talking to Gentile believers here. People who were not Jews, who were not born uh, natives of Judah. They were not in the Jewish faith. He's talking to them. And he's saying, you were alienated from the people of God. Because there is conflict. Remember what Ross preached about last week? There is conflict between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians. And Paul is admonishing these new Christians, these new Gentile believers, remember where you came from. By the way, can anyone relate to that? Like, when we get a little uppity, let me say it this way. When we knew somebody back in the day and they get a little uppity, what do we say? I knew you went. Remember where you came from. Is it only me? Am I the only one who knows that experience, right? That Paul is saying, remember where you came from. 
Do not be arrogant. That's the language that Paul uses in the book of Romans when he's talking to Gentile Christians about their relations with Jewish Christians. Do not be arrogant that they have been cut off the branch and you have been grafted in, is the language from, from Romans. Do not look down on your brethren. And why do we have to be admonished to do that? Because we look down on our brethren, don't we? We are so focused. I said the reason we're preaching on this, this concept of dwelling together is because we don't do it very well. And one of the reasons we don't do it very well is we think too highly of ourselves, Romans chapter 12. That we start to look down on others, that our preferences become our basis for saying that we are right. Can you think of some examples? You've been in a worship service where people were doing this? And how many people are like, whoa, what is going on with those charismatic people? And then you've been in worship services that have been like this. And we look down on those folks too for their stoicism and their stiffness. Or I heard people clapping today during a song. Who's been in churches where there's no clapping? Stop that clapping. No joy of the Lord, right? What do we do? We constantly look at the differences among us and we make judgments as a result of that. And almost invariably, we are the ones who come out on top in our own minds. And God is saying, remember where you came from. Remember who you were, dead in trespasses, alienated from God. You did not save yourself. It was by grace, the gift of God himself. Now, this has particular application, I think, during the time in which Paul wrote. But it also has particular application for us. It has particular application for the time in which Paul wrote because, again, there are these Gentile Christians and there are these Jewish Christians and there are these divisions. You'll, you'll remember this. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, remember the Jerusalem Council where Paul had to go down and essentially make his case to the elders of this brand new thing, the church, and say, I'm just preaching to the Gentiles, and I'm not saying they got to get circumcised like the Jewish people. I'm saying they need to believe in Jesus. Do you remember that? There was a massive amount of disagreement between the, between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And Paul is going to say this, and this is the next contraction. Verse 13, chapter 2, verse uh, 13, but now. That's who you were. That's who you were out in the world, judging yourself against others, setting yourself up as greater than others. That's who you were in, before Jesus Christ. But listen to what he says in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, the Gentile Christians, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. We're right back to the cross. We're right back to the gospel. We are not to think too highly of ourselves because Jesus is the one who secured our salvation, bought it for us, paid with his blood. Who then are we to look down on our brethren? Honestly. Sorry, this is the, this is the passion. Who are we to look down on our brethren because of what Christ did for us while we were dead? For he, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. By the way, do you see how that word keeps coming up over and over again, the word one? He has made us, verse 14, he has made us both one. Uh, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. I skipped verse 15. He might create in himself one new man. And he came, he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, the exact opposite of the way we think is the way God thinks. The way exact opposite of what the, the things that we typically want, how we gravitate towards people like us. Sometimes that's people who look like us. Sometimes that's people who think like us. Sometimes that's people of a socioeconomic class like us or a status like us. And God is saying that in the cross, Jesus broke down the wall of hostility that separates us. And the application in that time for for, for Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, is it any different today for Christian Christians and other Christian Christians? The differences that we hold up? Differences of race? Really? Differences of musical preferences? Churches split over whether there's going to be carpet in the sanctuary, for goodness sakes. And God is telling us that we must dwell together in unity. Do you remember, I, I said, spoiler alert, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, that God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ. Amen. Things in heaven and things on earth. That it is his desire that we are united, not divided. That to the extent there is a dividing wall of hostility between us, it's one we have built after Jesus knocked it down. And then maybe we need to go back to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 to check who we're following. Or maybe we are just need to go repent and seek God's forgiveness. That these visible, tangible, physical, monetary, whatever differences they are. And I'm not talking about the, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. I'm not talking about, about not maintaining those distinctives. We, are, we, we do want to maintain those distinctives. I'm talking about people who are professing followers of Jesus Christ who can't get along because of skin pigmentation. or what region of the country we were born in, or what region of the, of the world we were born in. I say this to my own shame. I say this to the shame of the church, not just Centennial. I used to have a friend in Richmond, an African-American man, who always used to remind me that the most segregated place in America on Sunday mornings was the church. And by the way, we're a predominantly white congregation. That doesn't just stand for predominantly white congregations. It stands for everybody. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are to be united. 
And so verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And here's our last contraction, but, but you, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I just noticed that in, 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 uh, you'll notice that when, when Paul is emphasizing something, or so, this is often true in the Bible, when God is emphasizing something, he will say it multiple times. And did you hear what Paul just said? But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And think about it. Have, have you ever moved away? You, you moved from wherever you grew up and you moved to another city and you meet somebody who's from your hometown, what do you do? You, don't you almost automatically have this bond with them, right? I have a, a, a woman who I work with, her boyfriend. We did this after work thing, and we're chit-chatting, chit-chatting, chit-chatting. And then I discover, he's from Pittsburgh. Dude! I'm from Pittsburgh, and we're starting to talk about the Steelers, and we're talking about the restaurant Primanti Brothers, and we're talking about all of these different things, and the next thing you know, we recognize we are fellow citizens of the same place. By the way, it turns out I know his dad. Crazy small world. We're fellow citizens. How much more for those of us who used to live in Deathland... <laughs> That we are fellow citizens now that God has given us life out of his great love for us. That we are fellow citizens, but not only fellow citizens. It was amazing that I knew this guy Max's dad, but how much more if Max and I were actually related? And that's what Paul was saying. It's not only that you are from the same place, we are of the same family. The family of God. Remember Ephesians 1? That he predestined us for adoption as sons, that he has brought us in to his own family. And that family is built on the foundation, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And do you see this interesting transition that Paul has just made? He's talking about a construction project. John McSorley, you'll like that. He's talking about a construction project. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, and here Paul's going to say something twice again for emphasis, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? That the idea is not that God saves us, and that we can go off on our own. The idea is that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we are brought into a new family. And that family exists to be united one with another. Amen. That we are being built together. And if I'm being built with Jim Hessen, how stable are we going to be when we're this far apart? Not too stable, right, sweetheart? It's going to be bad. We're not going to hold it up. And so what do I need to be doing? That's ex <laughs> Yeah. Standing up. Come here, Jim. Come on. Standing up. Come on, Ginger. Get up. Stand up, sweetheart. What's your name? Hannah. Would you come up here, Hannah? You want to be built together and make the, a, a holy temple for the living God? Come on in here. You hold, you hold Jim. 
This is the imagery. Ali, come here. Come on. In fact, it's not even this. Because there's a lot of space between us. Am I right? Anybody have a leaky roof? What do you need to do? Close that space. Jess, come on up here. Jess, come on up. God is making us into a house. Where's Elijah? Come on, Elijah. Now, I picked Elijah because he's strong and muscular, and we need some... <laughs> we need something that's going to hold something up. You see, this is the church. Right. This is the church. Amen. And to the extent... That's it. To the extent we're not living like that, we are disobeying the commands of God. I'm going to say, let me say it a different way. We are disregarding his wishes. Jesus in John chapter 17 is praying to his father, and this is shortly before he's going to go and be arrested, be beaten, mocked, crucified, and killed. And this is what he says. I do not ask for these only. He's, this is a prayer to God. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, get ready for this, his prayer, that we would be one. We, we would be one. And by the way, that's not only Centennial Church. That's all followers of Jesus Christ. But at least at Centennial Church. Are you tracking with me? Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that, there's that word again, that phrase, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There is a world out there that is crumbling in division. Everybody is in some faction. Everybody is in some caucus. Everybody, it seems, is in some voting block. We, as the people of God, should stand against that. that we are to be one. In a world of Ferguson, Missouri that doesn't believe white people and black people can get together, that should be disproved simply by looking at the church. In a world, in a community where Hispanics are building our homes and we don't know a single one of them? Is that right? In the church of Jesus Christ? I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip. What I am trying to say is we have work to do. That Jesus, by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, is breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. And we can't keep erecting it. 
Our love for one another should be so radical. Our unity in Christ should be so radical that the world, stuck in its division, stuck in its hatred, ought to look in awe. And as Jesus prayed, they should believe that God loves us and that God sent his son for us. Will you live that way? You who were dead in your trespasses, will you live and rise with Jesus into newness of life? Would you pray with me, please? God, we ask you to be glorified. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work, not guilt would work, but that your spirit would work, that if there's anyone here in this room who doesn't know Jesus, that you would quicken their hearts right now and that they would pray to receive him, not as salesman, but as Savior and Lord. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who are followers of you, that we truly would follow after you that your love would control us, that we would make it our aim to please you and so love one another, so unite together under the headship of Jesus Christ that people would look at the church not as fractured and broken, but as a beautiful tapestry of God knitting very different people together so that Jesus might be exalted. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.